Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching another episode of the Weviate podcast. I'm once again super excited to be joined by Weviate co-founder and CEO, Bob Van Light, and welcoming a super exciting guest, Vinod Valapilil. Uh, Vinod has one of the most impressive resumes I've ever seen, ever uh, met someone this accomplished in the technology industry. Uh, Google, Dropbox, Microsoft, uh, startups, and all these things. Uh, Vinod, it's such an honor to have you as a part of the Weviate team as an advisor, and of course, today on the Weviate podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Glad to be here and can't wait to you know, talk, talk more about the future of you know, vector databases and LLMs. So. Yeah, great to, great, you know, great to have you here, uh, Finot. It's a, uh, we're, I think we are introduced maybe it was like a year ago or something. Or how, oh, something I would say like it's maybe that, a huh? year and a half ago uh, you yeah. know, through like some fellow entrepreneurs and stuff. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, and and one of the things was the um. So of course, you know, as a as a as a co-founder in my role, you're constantly thinking of like, okay, what's the, how does our business evolve, right? So we have this beautiful thing we do that's, as I always tell people, it's like if you peel off the onion, you find in the center of the onion, you'll find the index, which is the that's the vector index, but then. The whole onion sits around that, right? That goes into like you know how the product evolves and 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 how we um, uh, how we help, as I was like say, how we help people be successful with with LLMs, and and it's it's wonderful um, uh, you know to work uh, to work with you, if you know. And I think it's great if people um, you know hear a little bit like how you think and those kind of things, and maybe it helps them. Uh, maybe it, it helps them also to create stuff with Vivian. So that's that's great. But there is one question that I really want to start with, um, if you know it. Um, can you share maybe with the listeners, what's a uh, Halloween document? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was from many moons ago. I, yeah, so I started my career at Microsoft a long time ago in the early days of Windows, Windows IT Server, and so on. Um, and then the Halloween document is over 20 years old, I guess, at this point. And what it was... You know, it was an interesting piece of computing history. I mean, it was basically at that time, Linux was just starting to appear on people's radars. And so uh, a bunch of the uh, Microsoft executives kind of tasked me with, hey, go figure out what this Linux thing's about and, trust, and start figuring out, you know, is this something Microsoft needs to worry about and what are we going to do about it and so on. Um, and so, you know, the Halloween document was kind of the first of a series of kind of internal memos and internal investigations about, you know, just kind of educating Microsoft internally about, hey, what's this open source thing? What's this Linux thing? And so on. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of controversial. It was kind of interesting because it kind of, you know, it was always designed for kind of internal consumption inside of Microsoft and through whatever set of paths it ended up getting leaked out to the outside world, you know, generated a, a lot of interesting commentary and reaction. Um but I think I don't know. I mean, in, in hindsight, I think most of what the documents were kind of describing and you know you know kind of observing held held true. Yeah, I think they survived the test of time. Um, and in fact, I was just, just talking with somebody else in Microsoft, and they were talking about how if you look at Microsoft Azure, you know, the cloud computing services, uh, it's now actually one of the world's largest deployments of the Linux operating system. Um, mm. And many of the you know many of the advantages and in kind of intrinsic you know, benefits of open source. Yeah, proved out to be true. Like it's very hard to imagine building in any kind of new developer platform or developer service today um, without a substantial open source component. Can you? So what's interesting because I um, when we just were in the in the green room, I guess before we started to record, I believe uh, because the documents are N ninety eight, I believe. And yeah, uh, I believe. How old were you again, uh, Connor? Oh, was geez, it again N ninety eight? 23 years old, 22 years old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so. And I, I kind of here we go. Two years old. I I, I was a little bit older. But the, what's what's interesting is that especially by the end of last year, right? So it's now it's now you know early 20, uh, 2024. 
the um, the role of open source in 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 AI in general with the LLMs, with the methodologies, databases, and I I want to get to that. Um, but the role of open source is such a yeah. I mean, even when I started my career, open source was such a yeah, it was everywhere. So it's like it was like a no-brainer to work with it. Can you maybe just for people listening, I think it would be interesting. So apparently, from these documents, that was not the case, you know, in the in halfway through the through the nineties and probably before that. What was it? Was it th- that change that that importance came into for open source? That also, so money went into open source and those kind of things. Was that a um uh, um was that already established in 98 or was that still on the forefront that people weren't sure yet what direction it would take? And I would love to understand how, what, what was the big change? What was, what was the change? Was it like an in infrastructure and in databases and companies Sure. that you were like, yes. So what we wrote in these documents, the whole open source thing, that's, that's here to stay. That's not going to go away. Yeah. When, when, when was that? Oh, no, I, I mean, I think the f- the most fundamental driver on the open source, and this is actually something we touched on in the in the Halloween memos way back in the day. At the end of the day, the most fundamental driver is the Internet itself. Um, mm. right? The Internet vastly grew the total computing universe, vastly grew the number of people who are interested um, and willing to contribute even small slices of their time to an open source project, and then provided this, you know, interesting, unique collaborative framework for kind of stitching together all these little tiny slices of time um, into a cohesive product. Um, I mean, if you're asked, like, you know, the, the vast majority of the history of computing, I mean, this is, you know, e- even work from home is kind of a <laughs> newish thing or was an internet-enabled thing. The vast majority of the history of computing was, you know, dozens or hundreds of people all in the same physical location coordinating together and because they're all in the same physical location, they're all employed by the same company, they're all building mm-hmm. something under, you know, in you know, on, on the company's clock, on the company's dime, um, in the company's facilities, instead of a single company repo, and so on. Um, the internet blew up a lot of those, or it provided an alternative, I should say, to a lot of those assumptions, right? It meant that now you can have a large distributed network, globally distributed network of people, um, many of whom were doing, you know, contributing volunteer cycles. Um, and so, the, I don't know, there's maybe about three or four kind of different variables that all change at the same time, right? The, maybe the, I'll go back to one of the biggest ones is, the total market for software and computing devices grew astronomically. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't you know in the eighties, nineties, and even in the early two thousands eras of computing. If you weren't monetizing the vast majority of your software installs, you were on a path to bankruptcy as a company. Right? Mm-hmm. They just literally the total number of installs of a database or whatever might be measured into tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And so, as a firm trying to pay salaries and so on, you need to make sure you're monetizing half, if not more, right? The vast majority of those installations. Um, we're now in a world, especially, you know, in, in, you know, with software and especially infrastructure software, things like databases, things like operating systems and so on, where you only need to monetize a tiny percentage, you know, 1%, 2%, 5% of the total installed base in order to run a viable ongoing concern that can provide support, product roadmaps, product evolution, and so on. And so, th- so that mm. radical shift, right, in the numerator, right, that radical shift in the total addressable market of software meant that business models that only monetized 5% of their installed base were suddenly viable, whereas, you know, a few decades ago, it was completely impossible. Um, yeah. That's that's super interesting, and 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 that's an interesting fast forward to today because I I I would love to first 
double click from that perspective on uh, models, right? So, 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 I mean, it doesn't have to be LLMs per se, but we can take LLMs as a as an example. And one of the um, one of my, I guess, like uh, hobby horses, if you will, uh, things that I like to talk about. There's also there's a blog post about this in the making, by the way. Is that I'm fascinated about the fact that um, we are, or the companies creating businesses around uh, machine learning models have to deal with the fact that the models today are stateless. And uh, quickly for the for the people listening who who don't know the the, the background story, so so very quickly to go over that. So for a long time, when we were building, for example, infrastructure and those kind of things, the thing that we monetized was you know statefulness, right? So. You throw, you, you store something in, the, for example, a database, or uh, or you have something go through like a streaming Kafka thing or whatever, right? The thing you want to, the state was involved, right? So if you if you shut down a database or or if you stored something in a database, then you know three days later you were still hoping that it was there, and kind of that's kind of what you're paying for, and that kind of now is separated in. <clears throat> storage and computer or co- combination of both or, or those kind of things. What I found fascinating about LLMs is that LLMs um, don't have that. So um, the um, let's, say, let's say, for example, um, when OpenAI released um, uh, 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 GPT-3.5 as a, as a, behind an, an API and people saw that value, then that was kind of the only business that they had because the the uh, the model has the same problem as I was like say as an MP3 file, is that it's great if you make a beautiful song and I might be paying for that one MP3 file, but if you go like hey Connor if you know this is a beautiful MP3 file I share it with you guys you enjoy the music too you're probably not paying for it right because there's no state involved so a way to do that is the you know quote unquote um, uh, Spotify model which we yeah. now see with LLMs. There's a Spotify model to get access to that LLM. You know, you can't get access to the raw thing, but it's behind a, um, a paywall. And with the working assumption that that's not going to change, that for the foreseeable futures, the models will stay stateless. I find that fascinating because now people need to think different about how uh, to build, you know, mo- a business around these kind of models because not every company is able that can be for security, privacy, latency reasons, whatever, get that information from behind a, um, a API-based walled um, garden, if you will. I, I would love I, to I hear your I, thought. I actually, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, was gonna say, I might actually push back a little bit on the... I'm not sure if I'd call the model stateless, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think it might actually be it's it's potentially even a worse situation than a stateless model, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I've, I've been working in different AI systems. You know, my first computer vision startup and stuff was maybe I don't know 10, 10 years ago, I guess at this point, um, and and so much of the era you know of the you know there there's kind of classical AI with like symbolic systems and so on. Then kind of deep learning kind of showed up about 10 years ago, roughly, and it kind of revolutionized all, you know, the, the language and the vision and so on fields. And in the early days of deep learning, it was all about searching for the right algorithms to feed proprietary data sets into. Um, I, I think the big thing that happened with LLMs, you know, what, what OpenAI kind of really proved by putting, you know, putting cool stuff out mm-hmm. in the market, you know, four, three or four years ago was, you know, in the, in the past, AI development was grab somebody else's model or grab somebody else's algorithm and bring your data. Um, with OpenAI and GPTs and so on, it became, hey, we're going to go scour all the data in the world, right? We're going to grab as much internet data as we can, and we're going to give you a whole bunch of data that's prepackaged into a model. 
And that data, unfortunately, for better and worse, there's pros and cons, is opaque to me as a model user or me as a model consumer. And so it's highly, mm. it's a highly stateful model, but the risk is that it's frozen and you have no idea what state was fed into that model from the outset. Um, and so things mm. like hallucination or things like jailbreaking and so on are outcomes of the fact that we ultimately don't really, especially especially a large commercial model, we ultimately don't know what was used to bake that model. And so God only knows what weird prompt we can throw at it that'll create it to reg- you know, force it to regurgitate this crazy training data that it was built on. Hmm. Um, and so for a typical enterprise, it's a, it's, it's a highly stateful thing, but a highly black box, right? It, it, it forces you in a certain corner. Yeah, so would it be would it be fair to say if we if we want to stick with the with the with the MP3 uh, metaphor or analogy? I mean, yeah, it's it an MP3 to... that has a hundred songs pre-baked, right? And you're trying to figure out yeah, where, <laughs> where to skip inside of an MP3 to get that song, right? Exactly, or or maybe another way to look at it is that the um, so if you have an MP3 in the way that's different is that the the MP3 file. I mean, um, if the if there's a baseline in there, right? We can't change. We can't change the baseline, yeah. but <laughs> in theory, the in the model we can change the baseline. But we we it's a it's a it's a black box. It's hard to figure out how to change specifically the baseline and not by accident the the piano, right? So how can we can we label that somehow? How could we call that? Is that is that what what kind of uh, what kind of state is that? So we have pure stateless, pure stateful. It, it's somewhere in the middle, I guess. I, I yeah, I, I mean, the the phrase I've often used is, is that it's pre-baked. Um, yeah, 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 it's knowledge. It's knowledge that somebody else grabbed. And somebody else kind of wrapped into them into the model, uh, giving you a, a baked system. Yeah, but this is this is actually interesting because if we um, if you have these three types, right? So the um, uh, with everything that now came into the cloud, and when it comes especially to the business around that, the people kind of figured out how to build businesses around sta- pure statefulness, right? databases, um, infrastructure, that kind of stuff. On the other hand, we have the, the the pure stateless solution, so more on the consumer end. I'm thinking, you know, Spotify, those kind of things. So, would you argue that this third new way, this that's go with the label pre-baked, uh, opens up the door for like a new, completely new way of creating value and capturing value? Absolutely right. I mean, in in, 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 in yeah, especially with both of you guys have an AI background, like. I mean, the old days of AI development, and I think Andrew Ng has a lot of really nice talks that he's given out on this, right? In classical AI development, it was a multi-month, right? Three, six, nine-month process to get data, prep data, clean data, test the model, build a model, throw it out there, and then see what works. When you have a pre-baked model, when you have an LLM that already has all this knowledge you know, pre-installed into the model, um, it now becomes you know a multi-week, multi maybe maybe weeks or months process to just figure out the right incantation, right, the right prompt to throw at this baked model in order to get the right output out. And so mm. you've dramatically shortened the uh, time to value, right, the time to actually get something out of an LLM that you were looking for, um, as well as dramatically broadened the audience of people who are now able to interact with the LLM. Right, you don't need a you know an AI master or AI PhD in order to get an LLM to do something for you. Exactly, and and the and where do you think? Um, especially now, what we see with with um, uh, with something like Reg, which is so the reason it's so interesting. If we, besides the academic side of it, right? So yeah. the how do we do it? Besides mm. the 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 new use cases that come out of it, but if we look at it from more the well the value creation or the, or the business side, if you will, 
Um, how do you how do you see that evolve? What do you think what will happen? Because of course, and I'm I'm this is a little bit your self serving question, of course, because we, you know we have the the vector database that we weave together with the with the with the models. What 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 are your thoughts on that? How do you think that will that develop? And do you think that open source plays a role in that? So um, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm definitely a, uh, I mean, obviously for on multiple levels and have been for a few years now, a big believer in all forms of uh, retrieval augmented generation, Um, even before it was kind of called retrieval Mm -hmm. augmented generation. uh, I mean, there was a paper that DeepMind put out maybe three or four years ago that I was a big fan Mm -hmm. of. And I remember reading the paper back when I was at Google um, on a project they called Retro. And and Retro's Mm -hmm. goal uh, was retrieval, uh, retrieval enhanced transformers or something like that. Um, and Retro's goal, or one of, one of the big findings in Retro, um, which is which was one of the many advantages of what we now call RAG, but one of the big observations in Retro was that if you minimize the amount of data that's packed into the model's own parameters, you know, what's called parametric memory, and rely mm-hmm. on external retrieval to an external database, you can end up with something like a 25x smaller model delivering the same performance or the same value as, in that case, 175 billion parameter GPT-3. Um, you know, Retro's goal, once again, was they were pushing kind of the theoretical extreme to figure out what's the smallest possible model you can build when you have a, you know, when you, have, when you can guarantee that it's always going to be augmented by a database. Uh, but even that, right, just, just that one issue of model size has dramatic advantages when it comes to developer ergonomics, right? A 25x smaller model literally is multiple times easier to build and deploy and train and retrain and, re- and fine tune and so on. Um, and that's before you get into all the other advantages of a retrieval augmented system, right? A retrieval augmented system, you can now independently update the data without, without having to update the model weights. Um, the data can be kept fresh. Um, there's a lot of evidence and a lot of the, and some of the guys at Facebook and uh, Facebook AI research in their paper that coined the term RAG, you know, they also cited a whole bunch of other advantages around things like hallucination, um, you know, hallucination and being able to keep the model instead of a guardrail when you have really tight um, coupling between the model and the database. Um, I, I think it's kind of inevitable. Like in, in my case, I think, you know, if, if I were to look at how would I chart this, you know, the industry's pendulum swings and so on is, you know, maybe the first two or three years, you know, up until 2023 of large language models, um, a lot of the goal was basically how do you pack as much knowledge into the parametric memory, into the parameters of the model as possible in order to deliver the biggest and baddest and craziest pre-baked model. Um, I think a lot of what's going on in 2024 is people are starting to back off now from you know, from a you know, really simplistic view that a bigger model is better. Um, and so now you're starting to see alternate model architectures like Mixtral you know, was really hot, but they're a mixture of experts. You're starting to see RAG really become part of the mainstream conversation on models. I also think we're not far from seeing a lot more AI um, that's specifically optimized or specifically targeting the idea that every LLM will be paired with some form of external non-parametric memory over time. Yeah. And do you think, this is great, by the way. And so do you think, so um, in a previous podcast, we had a conversation with um, uh, Paul Groth, who, um, uh, where we talked about like knowledge bases, uh, knowledge stories, those kind of things. And also he can, he comes, of course, more from also from an academic perspective. And but one of the things that we tried to determine, and that we were just you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fantasizing on a podcast, like what what the direction could this go into, right? And because the 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 the, the, the fascination that I have, is like that this that we still that these weights that they sit like just in a in a binary blob, 
right? So what do you think with this, with this, are we going to go to systems that are more storing and manipulating these weights um, uh, in near real time? Or is it just still going to be a different system? Are we going to do that with vector embeddings? Yeah. What do you think? This is a very rich topic and there's a, you know, there are a lot, I mean, large teams of researchers spending millions of dollars trying to explore, explore all the different corners of this particular universe. Um, I mean, maybe that's a good thing we can drill into a little bit. I think there's, I know, order of magnitude, four or five different paths that this industry is kind of walking down right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, up until, you know, let's, let's say the circa 2023 and before path was a really rich framework, you know, a Langchain or, you know, or Llama Index, you know, Haystack and so on. A really rich framework that was managing the retrieval stack. And so encoding content for proper retrieval, pulling content out of the, out of the vector database. And encoding that content into a prompt, right, in context learning against a large language model, and using that to drive language model behavior. Um, that you know that architecture is a reaction to the fact that the language model itself is pre-baked and very very high function. Um, you know the, the the language model doesn't really care about the fact, at, at least in this ver- version of the architecture, the language model never really cared about the fact that there was a retrieval system that was part of the game. And a lot of what you were doing was trying to make this retrieval system matter to the language model in the form of in-context mm. learning. Um, I think a lot of what's, you know, a lot of the uh, directions and explorations that people are, ma- um, are pursuing moving forward go on four or five different tracks. I and mean, the one you were kind of hinting at, Bob, is that, um, you know, there is one angle, which is basically, you know, let's let's revisit the assumption that the language model itself has to be or should be frozen. You know, what, are there ways that we can directly edit the parametric memory of the language model um, to add facts, delete facts, and so on? I think there were a couple papers, you know, where they, you know, you know changed the capital of France or whatever to Pittsburgh or something in order to make demonstrations of that, right? Um, and, and I think that's an, there's early research progress on that. It's still a long way to go before you know we really achieve anywhere near the production level capability that we've already started to see with frozen language models, um, or even more classical techniques like fine tuning or kind of training your own model. Um, if you, you know, other directions that we're starting to see a lot of investment in is basically a much richer retrieval stack. And so you know you guys just had um, Omar Khattab and Colbert on where we we're talking about what are if you. If you assume that the retrieval layer is doing a lot more semantic understanding of the content, it's not just simply getting and putting vectors, but also doing things like, you know, BM25. So it's actually got an inverted text index as well as a vector store. And then you take another level up where you say, what if the retrieval stack is actually a model in and of its own right? Um, you end up with much richer retrieval mechanisms that can now be fed into in-context learning and then ultimately into a model um, and, and sent out. Um, another entire different uh, direction, and this is the direction that the Facebook team was originally, or the Meta team was originally pursuing when they did what they called retrieval augmented generation, is what happens if you co-train a language model alongside a uh, retrieval model? And so, um, you know, RAG and Retro and so on looked, you know, they they held, they were building out variations of both systems, right? They weren't holding one thing fixed. They were co-training both systems for maximum performance. Um, there's a bunch of advantages for, um, from that, right? At the end of the day, and almost all machine learning systems, end-to-end training wins it all, right? Um, however, there's a lot more to this world and a lot more commercial reality to this world than just, you know, being able to, not everybody has the ability or the desire or the interest in training their own custom language model optimized for a particular retrieval stack. 
um, or a particular retrieval set. And so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I mean, maybe maybe we reduce the cost on that, or maybe it becomes an interesting um, thing moving forward. Um, there's also a lot of interest, or another angle that's gonna, that we're seeing a lot of is basically for if you look at a lot of what's going on in retrieval augmented generation, a lot of the demos retrieval augmented generation, they're basically just smarter forms of search. Um, you know, you're not yes. asking the model to take the retrieved content and then generate Shakespeare with it or take the retrieved content and turn it into an algebra lesson. Right. A lot of the times what you're doing is you're asking the model, um, hey, just summarize what are the top two or three issues or top two or three findings in this research paper? Um, if the surface area that you're looking for from the language model is that small, right? It's basically things like text summarization, text summarization, or kind of weaving a cohesive piece of text across the findings across two or three different retrieved blobs. Um, you don't need the full capabilities of GPT-3, GPT-4, and whatever to do that, right? You end up with a much smaller language model on top of a comparatively much richer retrieval system or retrieval model. Um, and, so, and so those are a couple of examples, right? And there's still, there's maybe like two or three cases um, that are still out there. For example, another one that comes to mind, uh, just because I was pretty involved with it at Google, um, is much more formal knowledge representation. And so things like knowledge graphs as the basis of retrieval, um, rather than text blobs as the basis of retrieval. And so, and so I think, you know, a lot of what I'm kind of looking forward to in 2024 and beyond is kind of seeing how each of these different threads play out, right? I, I think yeah. the, the desire and the need for, memory augmentation that's outside of the model is very clear, mm. very, very strong. Um, the question is going to be, how does it play into model architectures moving forward? Yeah, and I think, so Connor, didn't you also do some some paper reviews on that specific topic, right? I believe that, isn't that MemGPT also a, a way to achieve that? Or am I, am I, am I off there? Um, well, I think, um, I think MemGPT is kind of about, uh, so... I, I kind of took the end of what you're saying, Vino. It kind of inspired me thinking about like the, you know, how we had a lot of extractive question answering models, like train on the squad data set, for example. And, you know, that uh, offers a, a pretty cool functionality where you can like retrieve search results and then highlight the most relevant things. And we have all sorts of tasks, like say summarization or text to SQL that do that kind of like um, specific task. And I think now the what's different more than anything else is we have these models that can produce training data for task specific models, and then we can fine tune them to the smaller specialized thing and all these use cases. But I think where it maybe connects with MemGBT is um, it kind of connects with, um, I think it might help the context to know that MemGBT is kind of related with Gorilla as well in, in that Berkeley lab. You have Shashir Patel also on yeah. the paper with Charles Packer and and others and so, so uh, i was trying to I, I think there is a lot of fruit and you you can model the retrieval stack as basically yet another tool um inside of a tool former inside of a tool you know a tool yeah. understanding or tool using llm yeah and the oh sorry go ahead go on, sorry yeah oh no so i was just gonna say like agreeing like this whole use a specific tool and train a model for one tool i like that you brought up the tools former a lot too that's a really cool yeah yeah, and what I find very interesting is that I, so I, I think that the, uh, and I, I, I have to admit that I have some, some hopes for it, and I'll, I'll give, can give some context to why. But the, uh, uh, that the, the last point that you made, if you know, related more to knowledge graphs and those kind of things, that I, I hope that hey, we now see this rec use case and that's playing out, and people know what it is. It's, it's in, in, in it's today still primitive right, how we do it, but it already creates a lot of value for people, right? So we kind of can see where that's going in the research and how we're contributing from the database perspective. But I'm really 
um, uh, I, I hope that um, that that after REC, that we that we, that we you know that we can start looking at the at the at the knowledge graphs because the um, um, it's also what I see online what people are doing. I was very happy with that because I'm not sure if people listen know, but actually the original the beginning with VV8 was using the embeddings, and this is pre LLM. This is way back. Uh, this was with the graph models. I was like trying to solve the um, the fuzzy relations in knowledge graphs. Well, where we where we where we couldn't make them because I I thought like you know it's a um, back then the whole the semantic web etc was like a big thing, and I was like hey maybe this is a way in linked data to make these relations. So it's kind of nice to now see that to see that come back. And I'm even yeah, we're even looking into can we store the complete representation. The knowledge uh, graph representation, so including the weights, for example, in a graph connection, can we actually represent that in vector space? Right, so we can basically we traverse the space. And for people listening, a, a way to think about it or to visualize it is, as I always say, is like a, a a knowledge graph today is like a a, a thing is like that lives in two D, right? So it's a you can draw it on a paper and you can say, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Bob lives in Amsterdam, right? And that's like how we can make relations, or if you want to have weights in there you know the distance between bob and new york is i don't know how many miles but you know that you can fill it in and i think we can kind of capture that or not kind of i think we can capture that also in in uh in vector space and the models can help us and uh, move stuff around in 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 vector space so um if that if that's true and if that people start to adopt that that would be amazing because that would be like the another big unique use case also for for vector databases, right? So I'm yeah. I'm very 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 um, eager to you know, and then also what the team is doing, explore that further and help people to build these kind of systems. Because also the thing is like a you know a, a graph is often complex, also to traverse and especially to build the infrastructure. I mean, um, I know that from friends working on graph databases, right? So if you can represent that in in vector space, that would be that would be amazing because it at least becomes significantly easier to traverse. Uh, uh, vector space than the traditional graph. So, yeah, but I mean, I definitely have a couple of reactions to that. It's like, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, so the, you know, I've, I've spent a lot, a fair amount of time in like enterprise search as well. And so the classic, you know, the, the classic thing or the classic marketing problem that everybody has in enterprise searches are like, how come searching my own internal data set inside of my company, why is it so much harder than searching on Google? You know, how come everything I see on Google just looks so much better? And kind of the dirty little secret of a lot of that is that at the end of the day, part of the reason that Google search works better, obviously they've invested a lot of money and people and energy into that. But part of it is also because the underlying content on the web is actually much higher quality content, right? People have, been, people have similarly invested decades in creating the world's best possible landing page that answers specific questions and, you know, and professional graphics and professional content, you know, describing these individual topics um, because the web is so large. Um, by contrast, a lot of the content that lives inside of corporate intranets or a lot of these private data sets, there just simply is nowhere near the level of you know, directed investment around creating the highest possible quality content corpus. And so, you know, in classic enterprise search, the problem is no matter how good your search system was, you're always at the end, you're, at the end of the day, you're always beholden to what was the underlying content quality. I think you have a similar problem with RAG. Um, and, you know, the industry as a whole, you know, we're, we're moving from crawl to walk, right? These are, you know, version three, version five kind of problems. Um, but we're not far from hitting, we'll soon see a wall where a lot of the problems that we have with RAG is that the underlying content itself is kind of messy and so on. And a lot of that stems from the fact 
um, that at the end of the day, text is a very lossy way of representing information. Um, and so mm. I think there will be a resurgence of interest or resurgence, you know, a, a goal to, you know, to basically mimic what Google had to do on the public uh, consumer web is find a much more formal, deterministic, explicit representations of knowledge um, that can be much more directly manipulated by machine. Um, I mean, there was a fa- uh-huh. there was a paper just on a, maybe a month ago um, and, and LLM space moves so fast, right? But I think it was just a month ago talking about the reversibility curse in LLMs, yeah. um, where if you ask the question about who is Tom Cruise's mother, it got it right. But if you said, you know, so-and-so, you know, who is so-and-so's son, the LLM had no idea. Um, and it's a perfect example of where this implicit knowledge representation just trained off of text, you know, leads you into the kind of these weird error cases. And it was kind of funny because that was almost exactly or almost precisely a textbook 101 example of something that a knowledge graph can trivially conquer, right? A formal representation could absolutely tell you, you know, so-and-so's mother is therefore so-and-so's son, right? Um, And so I do do think there is ultimately going to be some more convergence or some more connection uh, between much more formal representations of knowledge and then the highly implicit representations of knowledge that you have that are inside of the weights of an LLM. Yeah, yeah, if I can. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I can add one quick nugget. I met with um, Kevin Mang, who's the first author of Memet from MIT, and he, I think he gives a great example of this reversal curse thing. Where so, it's, as Bob's mentioned, you change LeBron James plays basketball to LeBron James plays football, and then you ask it, "Who was Kyrie Irving's teammate when they won the championship?" So it's like, how do you resolve these other, you know, dependencies in the knowledge? I find that to be like yeah. a great on this implicit, explicit. That's. I never thought about it like that. That's that's a that's a good one. That's that's a good one. Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's fascinating because it it kind of um, assumes that everything around it and every you get into this very complex recursive thing where you just basically need to you're you're basically creating another world, right? So <laughs> yeah. the so the, the the model has a world representation, and you're basically saying like it's a it's a uh, um, uh, it's it's a different uh, you know it's a different world. So and and then before you know it, we we end up in analytical philosophy. So so let's be careful with that one. But the, <laughs> with all these different world representations, but the that's that's a that's a that's a good one. It's a so it's more like then the model is at where we are right now. What we know is like it's more like a companion, right, to help you uh, search. But I what I also find interesting was the um, is the I find the human element in this interesting as well. And what I mean with that is that, that people will take the path of, you know, least friction. So um, I I remember. So for example, the you could argue that if you have the web and the fact that we express web pages in HTML, um, um, let's forget about Flash and stuff for now. But just that we have a HTML representation, a DOM representation of information on the page right and that a that a search engine like um uh, uh like like google can parse that kind of information and and and, and work with it that's like, it's kind of understandable why that works because if you look at the common crawl for example who is also parsing that information that then in turn is being used uh, by the way i think that the common crawl is an example of one of the unsung heroes of all <laughs> these models that yeah. are being that are being traded. So if these people are listening, and, and the shout li- out Lion or Leon data set as well. I mean, all the images exactly, there. yeah, exactly. I th- I believe that the, I might be completely wrong. So if I am, then my apologies. But I think that the that the, the common crawl team is like two people or something. It's like a it's a it's it's a very tiny group. But 
the way that they can also store that information in these huge work files and that they that they get that from yeah. from uh, uh, from from HTML um, structure that kind of shows already that that's possible. And I also remember what I found fascinating was that I remember when microdata uh, um, became part of of the HTML syntax. So basically, that you could say, right, okay, if I say this pair of Adidas shoes is you know I don't know 150 bucks, that you could say like Adidas refers to uh, or Adidas, as they say in the US, uh, refers to the uh, to a brand, and then 150 bucks is then the price. And what was funny was that I I I I, um, I spoke to like, I guess an expert on the semantic web, uh, so the microdata semantic web kind of same thing, I guess. The um, that um, uh, he told me, he said, what's so interesting is that people only tag it properly if it's in their own interest. So they're yeah. not going to go to lengths to actually tell you that yeah. Adidas is the brand, but they're happily tell you that it's 150 bucks because then it shows up in like yeah. the shopping uh, uh, feature. So, and what I, and the reason I bring this up is because what I find so interesting is that one of the things that these LLMs uh, let's let's stick with language for now because these are what these LLMs do is that they also take a lot of friction away from how we can parse information. And yes, not everything yet. So PowerPoints are still difficult and that kind of stuff, but it takes away the friction to um, um, uh, to build stuff. And this is something that goes back to the conversation that we had with John Meda here on the podcast, is that I, one of the things that I, that excites me so much about this is that it's it it's becoming less elite to build these kinds of systems and tools. Yeah. So I love the fact that people now with a prompt or with some with a little bit of Python can start to build new products and things, right? So and that is a really cool thing. So the the the, the point I'm trying to make here is that the um that I believe that the um that this paradigm shift is happening from formal data, as we also do it in knowledge graphs, to yeah, more fuzzy data, I guess, or informal relationships that we don't even, that the model just infers for you. And I think that is, that is super, that is like tremendously exciting. So it just becomes easier to, to build stuff. Right. So, and that's something that I'm, uh, that I'm also very um, uh, excited about. So, and uh, I mean, I mean, at the end of the that. day, yeah, humans, so yeah, yeah. I mean, ahead, at the end sorry. of the day, humans do not do formal logic when we communicate, right? Like human communication, exactly. human visual, visual, verbal, and so on is all fuzzy, unstructured data. And in our brains, we yeah. kind of create a formal system around that. Um, and so the vast majority of the content that's out there to train on, at least the human-generated part of it, is going to always be that way. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and so we'll I mean, LLMs... Yeah, I mean, the, the pursuit of formal you know, representation of knowledge, I mean, there's no question that machines need that formal representation, um, at least today. LLMs kind of crack that open a little bit. Um, I mean, the classic problem in your Adidas example is, I mean, the classic problem with formal representations is at least to date, right, that Google Knowledge Graph being a great example. Um, it is an insane, you know, like thousands upon thousands of people of investment um, to kind of construct and maintain those knowledge graphs or construct and maintain um, those, you know, formal representations. Um, the hope is that LLMs dramatically reduce the cost and ongoing, you know, the, the initial construction cost and ongoing maintenance of a knowledge graph and make it something um, that brings it within reach. Um, I mean, there's obviously a ton of research going to this right now, and we'll see, we'll, we'll see what, kind of, what they're able to pull off. Uh, it's definitely hopeful, right? This is the first significant opportunity in this category in a few years. Yeah, exactly. And the the 
And of course, also, you know, things related to what we're seeing now with with multimodality, right? So I, I had a conversation with, um, uh, I believe it was actually with, with I met up with, with Niels Reimers, and I think that we that he explained to me a very simple problem that, that he was working on or something that he said, like, <laughs> if you have like a, um, well, let's stay with Adidas, right? So if you have like a, a PowerPoint slide and 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 uh, and it, it might have financial information, they said like, how much, and it might only have the three stripes of Adidas on there, right? It's like, how much, uh, what was the, 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 the revenue this year of like the, the company? That it's yeah. that you need a multimodal model to infer actually from the logo uh, uh, yeah. that, were, that uh, the company refers to Adidas because it's not in the text. It's just, it's in the, um, uh, it's inside. So that, those kind of things are super intriguing. But again, it is lowering that barrier to, to start building these these uh, these kind of these kind of systems, so I I have I have another question. I want to shift gears a little bit because I and again this is this is a little bit of self serving question, but I think people would love to hear this uh, too. If you know, so um, so of course Connor is talking to a lot of uh, um, uh, scientists in this space, right? So they have a a, a specific modus operandi how they um, uh, you know they do the research and they and they and and how they and you know how they bring that into um, to engineers so that engineers can pick that off the, you know, from the academic information and they can build systems around that. We have engineers, they have certain way how they build reliable systems. Um, we had John to talk about like how we design systems for these people, but you are in more in like in the, in the product space and especially in the leadership space around that. So what's so interesting, and I'm, I'm, I'm in that myself as well. So that's why it's a self-serving question. The interesting thing is like, you need to do a little bit of everything. Right, so uh, we touched upon um, uh, in, in this in the, the the forty minutes we're talking. We talked about um, frameworks. Uh, you mentioned Langley's Llama Index of this world. We talked about vector databases. So I, we we talked about the models. We talked about the research that's happening. We we talked about value capture and how we create value. What's your, so if something new emerges like this, right, like these LMs, what's your modus operandi? How do you, how far do you go in researching these things? Do you also try them out, or do you, is just theoretical enough for you? How do you, how do you do that? How do you, uh, um, uh, basically, how do you do your job? <laughs> yeah. What's your mode? What's your modus operandi? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in that, uh, you know, even at a very young age, like I, I absolutely remember the first time I saw a computer is actually probably that Commodore VIC twenty, you know, many many years ago. Um, and at that point, like I, you know, as a kid, I was probably like eight years old, saw a computer, and the kid and the the nine year old or the ten year old who could make that computer do things seemed like a god to me. And at that point, my mm. career path was set. There was no question that this is what I wanted to do um, for life. And so for me, a lot of you know, that underlying thing starts with just you just have to be genuinely curious about the topic at hand. Um, you know, even if this entire industry didn't exist, even if it wasn't a well-paid job or whatever, I'd still be super fascinated and still super curious about what's going on at the frontiers of AI, what's going on at the frontiers um, of computing, enterprise service, or, you know, servers and clients and the web and so on, right? And so that, that's kind of the first mode of this is you just have to come at it without any real agenda beyond I just am innately curious and this stuff's fascinating and there's an intellectual frontier that's being, you know, it's, it's being settled right now and we're going to go off and try to get to that, you know, get to that leading edge. Um, the reverse side of it is like, you know, you know, I've spent most of my career um, in enterprise and, you know, and, and selling things to organizations and uh, large companies and so on. And so the reverse side of it's also there, which is at the end of the day, you know, most enterprises 
you, you kind of have to start with what are the use cases and what are the things that, what are the problems these guys are trying to solve with technology, right? The vast majority of enterprises on the planet are not technology vendors. The vast majority of them are companies that are trying to, you know, provide mortgages to consumers or you know, run nursing homes or something like that. And so you start with that problem that these guys are solving and then it start, then you can apply a pretty, uh, pretty tight uh, razor to say, well, is this particular piece of technology going to be something that accelerates or decelerates or has no impact on what it takes for me to process a mortgage. Um, you know, large language models, retrieval augmented generation, just to kind of chase that example, right? The vast majority of the content that's form, that's assembled and constructed inside of a mortgage package, uh, which in the US is now 300 to 500 pages per mortgage, is unstructured data, right? It's all different types of documentation and all different types of content that you are kind of going through the last you know, X number of years of your financial life to assemble and provide to your mortgage, op- uh, mortgage officer. Um, the decision they're making is a mix of both structured and unstructured data um, that they're you know, using to ev- ultimately evaluate that mortgage um, application. And so f- from that lens, you can come up with a pretty strong idea of, okay, what are areas that we think that LLMs and RAG and so on are able to accelerate? Um, you know, it makes it a lot easier to process things like a photocopy of a W-2 form or look at, you know, look at checking account information or look at, you know, read information about the property and so on. Um, you know, other technologies, you know, I'm trying to think of an example, but, you know, virtual reality or AR is unlikely to improve mortgage processing. Maybe there's some extreme um, example of it, but at least in the short term, it's hard to imagine that, right? Um, maybe it improves other industries, uh, but certainly not some of the ones that I've spent a lot of time working with things like financial services and so on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's fascinating. I think if we, so looking at the fact that it's like early 2024 now. So if you had to, if you had to make a, a prediction, if we record this podcast again, like <laughs> uh, early 2025, what, what, no, let me rephrase the question. Not a prediction, but what do you hope to see solved? What do you hope like, oh, it would be amazing if, if that would be, if that would be solved. Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of what led to, you know, I guess me working with you guys and working with the WeVA team and so on. Um, I, I do think the vast majority of language models deployed by the uh, by the enterprise will have some retrieval augmentation. Um, and you know, as I was mentioning, at least going into 2023, um, retrieval augmented language models meant a very specific thing. Right? It meant a very large, frozen, high function language model coupled with a you know with a framework that's doing a lot of work, and then a vector database or some kind of a external repository to pull and get documents. I think different components of that architecture, we're going to start seeing a refactoring of that architecture and different systems, um, you know, different permutations of that where some of the capabilities that we currently say are part of the framework become part of the vector store or become part of the language model. I, one scenario I didn't even, I uh, didn't spend too much time on is like, there, you know, there's the lost in the middle problem, obviously, today with a lot of large context language models. However, there's also a lot of research going into how do we address the lost in the middle and how do we create massive language models, uh, massive context windows, right? And so it's just mm. something like, you know, you can imagine we're not too far from a world where if I ask a language model for a, you know, something, you know, a question about black holes, instead of just trying to go off and retrieve just information about black holes, we just give it the entire physics textbook and let it figure it out, right? Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. so, so I think that entire idea space is going to get a lot of exploration over the course of 2024. I don't think it'll be one single architecture uh, to rule them all, um, but I, I mean, I, I do think there is going to be strong convergence. That at the end of the day, the parametric memory inside of the model 
will almost always need to be augmented by external um, memory that's provided via database. Oh, that's super interesting. That is that is super interesting. So so you you might foresee the first glimpses of like a like a, a new architecture to really be implemented maybe this year. Yeah, I mean I, th- I mean you I think you kind of see those glimpses today, mm-hmm. right? Like today, you know, when when people talk about the Lang chain architecture, um, you know that or you know any of these framework based architectures, you see that architecture today. Like all the all the functional elements are inside of that architecture. They're just kind of allocated in different ways and implemented in different ways. And, you know, so things like content chunking today are extremely heuristic based and mm. honestly mm. kind of hacky. Um, we're not far from a world where things like content chunking become a learned behavior and probably and co-trained in adjust in, in conjunction with the embedding model uh, and then also mm. co-trained, uh, you know, co-trained with the language model itself. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely some cool startups like contextual AI uh, going after, you know, those types of scenarios. Yeah. Just to make sure that we that we're on the same page. So what you're saying is the so basically not now with the chunking we say like okay we have I don't know a twenty page document and then we chunk it up per paragraph that kind of it's like add ah, that's going to be fixed in the model. You think? Yeah, I think I think you know, I mean it, it's you know if you guys were any of you guys were involved in the early days of NLP, I mean you know t- language tokenization used to be a very hacky thing, right? And then a bunch of people figured out how to solve language tokenization um, via a more modeled based approach. Um, I think you're going to see yep. a similar modeled based approach for a lot of the pieces of a uh, of you know retrieval augmented generation. That makes well, that makes tons of sense. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think tokenization is an interesting one because we don't do end to end tokenization really. We mostly use like the byte pair encoding still and. So I guess I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of not in the end-to-end camp. I really like, and this especially comes from the influence of talking with Omar Khattab about uh, the DSPY framework and, or DSPY, I never get it right with <laughs> how to pronounce it. <laughs> but like this idea of like uh, having programs where you have these different modules. So I think like instead of the architecture as like a transformer or mixture of experts, you think of like RAG as one architecture with retrieve and then generate. And then you add that like query rewriting part to it. Now maybe you put re-ranking in there. Maybe you put summarizing before you answer. And now you've got like this program. And so to me, that was what, you know, kicked off Langchain's growth is this community sourcing of these pipelines. Like, hey, I, you know, I have it write me an email. Then I have an editor prompt. And then I have like a reviewer prompt. And so I think this kind of discovery of the programs is finally getting centralized around this DSPY mm. framework. And, you know, that's definitely what I'm like looking forward to working on is our yeah, VBA yeah. integration with DSPY. And, yeah, I mean, we're know. still in the earliest innings, right? These frameworks and, and the length is maybe even a little too harsh. on I mean, like they are doing incredible work. They have, and it's the power of open source. They have an incredible community. You know, I mean, Langchain today versus Langchain one quarter ago are practically you know different products, right? And so there is a, you know, it, it's hard to, de- it's hard to declare a winner in any of this stuff, right? Like it's, it's, it's the, there's, there's teams and there's energy that are just doing incredible work. Um, and we have some sense of what the long-term principles will be, right? The idea that memory is going to, you know, more and more of the memory for a model or for a given task is outside of the model rather than inside of the model. Interesting. I'm actually curious to what the uh, Connor, what, what your answer is to this uh, to this question as well. What, what do you hope that by the end of uh, if we re-record this early 2025, 20, uh, what do you think or hope that will be resolved? 
Um, well, I'm most excited about the LLM inference costs going cheaper and faster because I want to see the generative feedback loops thing more where my my dream is like I, uh, you know, I, I do Google search of Vnod and Bob and I get all the information and then I have LLMs just like simulate conversations, create data. And I think that maybe we'll see a world where you have like your personal notes and then the LLMs, like they do so much exploration within the ideas of your notes that it creates this billion scale vector index out of the product of the LLM, like thinking about your results, com- conversing with other LLMs that play different roles. And that's just what I really want to see is the new use cases with absolutely massive vector search. I, don't, <laughs> I hope that's yeah. the particular one. I don't know if that particular, but just let's see a hundred billion trillion scale vector search in that totally new use case. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's that's exciting. I, um, um, so 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 personally, I hope that he and I was thinking about that, especially as a combination of what you just mentioned, Vinod, and and you, Connor, in costs going down, is that the I'm I'm always fascinated by this concept that I can't. The, the only way I can explain is like good enough, right? <laughs> so that we get to these. So we get to a couple of these models that are good enough when it comes to yeah. inference, and then we try to you know we have all these boosting algorithms we have these 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 ports that we have to see, and then the cost goes down and i would i would I, not I would be on the, uh, on the good for, enough that's i mean that, you know especially from a product standpoint i mean that is that is one of the that is one of the classic you know classic kind of product strategy problems right it's like you know so for example i think we probably all agree that if you look at this stuff purely from an ai standpoint end-to-end training almost always wins right however there are other pros and cons of end-to-end training beyond just yes. straight up performance of the model and those and eventually you hit a point where that's good you know your perform model performance is good enough and it's these other secondary factors that drive you in the in one architectural decision uh, direction or another uh, exactly yeah. and i and and so and exactly and so so to to to, to quickly finish that thought i think so i would not be surprised if the if the iphone where are we now 14 but like 17 or android whatever <laughs> That that's just for an iOS developer, an Android developer. That's just an, an API when they are when they're writing code that just embeds that LLM, right? That they just basically say, okay, I'm now building something where I need something LLM based, or by then probably multimodal based, um, and that it just ships with the uh, um, uh, uh, with the hardware. I, I would not be surprised if that's where we're going. And I that doesn't really matter if it's like a proprietary model or I believe so. For example, I believe that um, the the Google model that Gemini has a I believe it's called Nano. I, I might be wrong. Yep. That is built for that use case so that it ships with Android. I think I think that's very exciting as well because it's just gonna be like ubiquitous. And and what's gonna be super interesting, of course, is that we're gonna mm-hmm. see like how will that um, uh, interact with you know with uh, with uh, with retrieval uh, with retrieval systems and how will people mm. be using that? So it's a I, I I hope that a year from now that that's kind of common ground that these models are not that they just that they're just everywhere and you get them in your phone you get them in your laptop <laughs> yeah <laughs> you get them in your fridge <laughs> and and then it just it solves you know um, these these fuzzy problems for you. This is this is great. This was a this was a great conversation. It's a thanks for joining. If you know, it was awesome. Absolutely great to join you guys. It was a lot of fun. So. Yeah, awesome. Fantastic. Thanks so much, everyone. <laughs>